Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, NBN audience. New Books Network and Nathan Moore welcome Assistant Professor of History Brent Sebel to the show. Dr. Sebel studies and writes about 20th century U.S. history and the interactions between business, political economy, and also race, inequality, and urban issues. The book we are discussing today is Illusions of Progress, Business, Poverty, and Liberalism in the American Century. Before arriving at Penn, Dr. Sable was a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the digital humanities at the University of Richmond, an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and once a visiting scholar at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His PhD is from the University of Virginia. Dr. Sable, can you give the NBN audience more insight into your background and what got you interested in the issues presented in your book, Illusions of Progress. Yeah, th- thanks so much. Thanks so much for, for having me and for your interest in, in the project. Um, so I, I grew up in, in uh, the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio um, in the 1990s. Uh, and I was, I really was sort of seduced by the business booster accounts of Cleveland as, as sort of the comeback city, the new stadiums, the sports teams that were doing relatively well, the new towers. Um, even even the sort of frothy excitement about public-private partnerships um, was something that kind of pierced my consciousness. Um, and I, I went away to college. I, I came back regularly, and by the by the mid two thousands, when I was a high school English teacher, it was clear to me that the stadiums and the office towers in Cleveland, at least. Um, offered, you know, an illusory sense of progress uh, in as much as the city itself, its residents, its schools, its infrastructure was continuing a really steady decline. And this was all the same moment, incidentally, uh, of, of Katrina uh, and the racial disparities of that catastrophe in New Orleans. Um, and that really, uh, along with my experience in Cleveland over a couple of decades, sparked my interest in these questions of the deeper structural matters about race and space and inequality politics and economic development that really did lead me to graduate school and ultimately this project. Um, And so the project is really is about how liberals beginning in the New Deal um, situated economic growth um, and growth partnerships with local business people as solutions for a really wide array of ills uh, for poverty and joblessness, fiscal crises, problems of public administration, liberals' worries about big government, right? The book is all about the cyclical return since the 1930s to these types of public-private partnerships, national-local partnerships and decentralism, market-oriented solutions, uh, organized by government, but often administered by and through local business actors. Um, And so what I argue ultimately is that many of these policy tools and orientations that took hold in the New Deal 
became essential governing strategies um, in the era of austerity uh, following the crisis of the 1970s. This is an era that scholars increasingly characterize as neoliberal or an era of neoliberalism or a neoliberal order, which is not to say that the New Deal was neoliberal, of course, but that embedded within its broader social aspirations and many real accomplishments were a set of more, you know, maybe mundane or less appreciated policy orientations toward markets and limiting public expenditures, partnering with business elites, uh, that really became amplified and accelerated in the 1970s and after. And what about your research process? Can you give the audience more insight into what you did to come to all this information? Yeah, so I, I definitely did a lot of background interviews um, uh, as I was getting started on the project to sort of orient myself towards not just the history, but also to, to locate archival materials and get a sense um, from boosters uh, about what they thought they were up to. Um, I spoke to the children of some of my actors in the in the Georgia. I've, I've got a case study in Cleveland and a case study in, in northwest Georgia around Rome. Um, and I, I spoke to the children of some of the boosters in Georgia. Um, I spoke with retired public officials, uh, including the late great urban planning guru, a guy named Norman Krumholtz in Cleveland. Um, I, I spoke with some of the pioneers in high-tech economic development strategies in Georgia. And, and it was through some of those conversations and, and outreach that, that I was able to find you know, the, key, the key sets of archival sources in the book are, are the records of local chambers of commerce in Georgia and Cleveland, um, which provide the really fine-grained texture on how these business elites, local business elites, viewed the growing federal state, growing, viewed the, the growing liberal state, the New Deal state, and really sought to bend its powers toward their interests. Um, and what I what I recognized pretty quickly as well is that this this sort of reorientation um, of of liberal policies or 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 the or the local administration of them produced a whole lot of conflict at the local level, um, especially um, by the fifties and sixties when a lot of those programs were ostensibly benefit, meant to benefit poor uh, and minority communities. And so that contestation led me to the archives of activist groups and civil rights organizations, um, including the NAACP that, you know, as early as the 1930s was recognizing the ways in which New Deal programs were uh, entrenching forms of inequality and segregation in certain areas. Um, and, and that came, you know, came to create new threats to the autonomy and sustainability of, of minority communities. And so uh, they saw what I call in the book um, administrative enfranchisement, um, and and so what I trace is how the sort of the civil rights movement of the you know the 40s to the 60s has has also some roots in the 1930s in terms of seeking a, a seat at the table of these new federal programs that are reaching into communities large and small across the country and that have real power to displace and destroy um, minority communities. And so the the archival base then is is designed not only to sort of trace the federal story from the perspective of of federal policymakers, um, but also this this sort of deep local contestation. And I guess finally the other thing I would say just for for historians interested in some of these, one of the one of the the biggest gold mines of of material that I found was in the uh, what's called the local governments record groups in the presidential archives, um, and these these were these are records groups that basically categorize by locality every 
form of communication that you've gotten from a local community. So it might be, you know, an African-American community advocacy organization complaining about how a housing subsidy has been co-opted by, you know, the local real estate lobby, uh, or it might be the, the mayor writing in, it might be the chamber of commerce. And so you get this really fine grained and very organized, um, local texture of, of communications between the local and these and the executive branch agencies of, of the federal government. Um, and so that's sort of the, the corpus that I'm drawing upon in the book. And why is the persistence of poverty a central theme in your work, if it is at all? And how do you see it as a byproduct of policies such as the New Deal? Well, I mean, I think... So for me, I mean, I think part of this goes is back to that sort of biographical story. I mean, I think, you know, being coming up in sort of a liberal um, middle class suburb, um, I was sort of personally and I could tell that my parents were sort of personally invested in certain ways and their friends were personally invested in certain ways in this discourse of progress that elites in Cleveland were selling in the 1990s, that, you know, the stadiums were going to have a trickle-down effect, that, you know, the the syntax that went into place that's highly regressive in lots of ways, um, the syntax that was subsidizing these stadiums was actually going to be this, um, this, this you know, it's, it was going to yield tax revenues that with which the city would be able to do all these progressive things. And so I, I pretty quickly recognized that... Um, as I was getting into this, that that solving poverty, focusing on social uplift are, are such a central part of liberalism's political presentation, liberal sense of self. And this is this has a long history going going from the New Deal to the Great Society and the Warm Poverty Era to Bill Clinton and the New Democrats. Um, and so I, w- I was interested both in these sort of discourses of progress that that center the problem of poverty uh, in liberalism's political imagination. Um, and the limitations. I mean, why why haven't we been able to solve um, these persistent and highly racialized pockets of poverty, um, and not just racialized, but but rural and Appalachian white poverty as well? Um, and that's not to say that there haven't been successes, right? I'm thinking thinking especially about Medicaid or programs like Head Start, um, and to a somewhat lesser extent, while we had it, welfare. Um, but these initiatives were largely meant to make poverty survivable, um, far less so to transcend or eclipse or, or end poverty. Um, and instead, what I what I try to show in the book is that liberals have largely emphasized growth programs, um, what, what scholars might call developmental solutions or economic modernization initiatives. Um, and so rather than trusting poor people with resources, right, a basic income, grants to start their own businesses, resources that are fundamentally controlled by regular everyday people with which they might define their own versions of community development, um, liberals instead repeatedly centered partnerships with these local business elites and, and their allies in the local public sector or philanthropies as, as you know, quote unquote, more responsible uh, stewards of, of community development. Um, and I will say, I, I, the exception to this account, I think, proves the rule, um, which was the community action programs of the war on poverty, which, you know, for more or less two years actually did deliver funds directly to community organizations with which they were enabled to define their own versions of community development and empowerment. What do they do? They, they organize for greater administrative empowerment and local governments. Uh, they organize boycotts of businesses that wouldn't hire minority employees or stock the kind of fresh produce they wanted. They protested urban renewal programs and school segregation. And most importantly, what they're doing here is they're challenging these local hierarchies of power upon which so much of 
liberalism since the New Deal had actually rested, right? These are mayors and city council members and these local business elites and chambers of commerce. And so almost immediately, I, sh- I show in the sort of middle chapters of the book, the Johnson administration itself swings into action to close the door on this really meaningful community empowerment. And in, in the spring of 1968, just before Johnson left the presidency, he, he holds a meeting with many, many local business people at the White House, and he urges them to take control of community action at the very moment that Congress, at his behest, was imposing new regulations, uh, demanding more of just this sort of like governmental and private sector oversight of those community development programs. And so at the, at the, within two years of, of the federal government actually trying a more fundamental approach to poverty, a more empowering approach to poverty, um, the, you know, the, the Johnson administration itself is going is, 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 is to snatch that right out of their hands. Um, and so the Nixon administration then extends Johnson's vision of public-private partnerships now to solve poverty, right? That poverty, that anti-poverty discourse persists, um, but now we've we've put we've put business people back um, back in the cockpit again. Um, so I think that that episode is sort of the the um, the pivot point of the book um, where we see a real possibility for a more progressive um, approach to poverty, but but in the sort of political difficulties that go along with that. Um, not even, not even, you know, one of the more liberal presidents of the 20th century is able to to withstand the the political backlash um, that he uh, saw. In what ways then do you hearken back to the days before FDR's New Deal came to fruition? So we're talking about the legacies of presidents like Woodrow Wilson, Warren G. Harding, or Calvin Coolidge. So I don't I don't spend much time with the preceding presidents, um, though Hoover Hoover does make some appearances here, and, and certainly his emphasis on on um, on associationalism, uh, which is sort of a fancy word for public private partnerships, um, does in fact loom large, um, and and in some ways provides a template for a lot of what the New Deal gets up to. Um, um, but in, in terms of antecedents or deeper continuities, I, I do think that that um, the progressive era particularly looms large um, in, in precisely because of the public-private partnerships that characterized um, municipal governments, particularly during the progressive era. Um, thinking here of uh, Dan Amsterdam's great book, Roaring Metropolis, um, which is about business-led civic developments in the progressive era. Um, and, and a whole lot of other work uh, on, you know, urban progressivism in those years that shows that business and professional class advocates of, quote unquote, good government, um, um, you know, weren't, weren't pursuing democratic governance, per se, um, in that they weren't advocating for the masses to participate much. But in this cooperation between civic elites and the political structure of, of local municipalities, they, they tried to create certain forms of democratic outcomes, parks and libraries um, that might, you know, create a dependable flow of labor, um, tamp down on radicalism, ensure an orderly society, um, you know, good municipal transport, things like that. And so I think those that type of cooperation is as the this is one of the watchwords of, of Dan, Dan Rogers, great book, um, Atlantic Crossings, when he talks about the progressive era or origins of the New Deal, this cooperation between private sector elites and, and municipal governments becomes this sort of foundational piece for the way in which the New Deal is going to structure the pub, its public works agenda. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to harness the capacities of that local public-private state um, in order to roll out the type of, you know, the type of unemployment um, solutions in the works programs that 
is absolutely essential, right? And so that, you know, federal government that, that lacks capacity sees in these progressive era partnerships between business and the, and the local state an opportunity to, to act quickly and potentially efficiently um, rather than having to, you know, raise thorny constitutional questions about, you know, completely federally administered programs that would take years to roll out. And, and so instead, they, they see a real opportunity here in, in these progressive era forms of associationalism that, as I say, are less about, um, you know, lowercase d democratic participation and are more about sort of delivering efficient services that, you know, will ensure the sort of social reproduction of, of an orderly um, industrial society in lots of these communities. Can you explain your definition of supply side liberalism? Yeah, so that that really is one of the key sort of um, analytics or, or conceptual variables um, that I'm trying to introduce in the book. Um, and in simplest terms, um, it defines what I think is a is, is a very durable uh, liberal orientation toward public policy that that really took root in the late New Deal. Um, and so what is this period of the late New Deal? So the, the, if we think about the early New Deal as essentially Roosevelt's first term, 32 to 36, that was a period of, of much more radical experimentation, um, you know, flirtation with much more highly centralized and, and administered prices and wages and all, all sorts of things. Um, and that, that period of radical experimentation uh, had come to an end um, by 1937-38. But a lot of the problems um, that the New Deal was trying to solve were not over. Um, and in particular, New, Deal's, New Dealers worried um, that the United States was not going to escape the Depression so long as regions like the South remained underdeveloped, um, so long as the industrial centers of the urban Midwest and North remained stagnant. Um, and I mean stagnant not simply in terms of economic uh, development and opportunity, but in terms of of social progress. Uh, as, as Roosevelt and other New Dealers understood it, the taxes that were essential to funding schools and infrastructure and ensuring the sustainability and autonomy of local governments, all of, all of those sort of fiscal capacities, those fiscal resources, weren't going to be forthcoming without economic growth. And so, and so they really did view a return to economic dynamism in the industrial Midwest and Northeast and, and, and new forms of jumpstarting growth and economic development in the South as essential to social progress. Uh, and so by 37 and 38, FDR lacks the political capital to do the kind of robust, centralized national experiments that characterize the early New Deal. But what he had were, were federal works initiatives um, and the WPA in particular. And by then, um, his staffers, and, and in the book, I emphasize, um, you know, planning elites like Charles Merriam, the economist um, Alvin Hansen, um, a young John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, um, they, they're beginning to recognize that local business elites had begun using the powers of federal works programs to remake local markets, right? And so they're using federally subsidized labor um, through the WPA in cities like Cleveland, along the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast, to dig deeper ports, you know, so that those industries now can can bring bigger ships in to bring more of their goods to global markets. Um, they're using the WPA to knock down outmoded factories and buildings um, in cities all across the country. I think in New York City, off the top of my head, I think the you know Fiorello LaGuardia, um, the mayor there, used 
New Deal subsidies through the WPA, the PWA, to, to knock down something like 8,000 buildings um, in the 1930s alone, all to be able to jumpstart these stagnant real estate markets, right? And cities depend on property tax values. And so if we're going to, if we're going to get, um, you know, the property values back up, we've got to get rid of these, these, these structures that the private market won't, won't take care of, won't, it's too costly to, to, to knock them down. And so they're using WPA labor in a way that's really a harbinger of the urban renewal programs to come after uh, World War II. You see similar things all across the country. I, um, local business elites um, organizing chambers of commerce, just they adored the WPA. My, my favorite example of this um, is it was in Augusta, Georgia, right? No, no progressive bastion, certainly. Uh, but the chamber there liked to joke that WPA stood for, quote, we protect Augusta, right? And so for me, what, what's being born um, in this moment is a, is a really remarkable, durable formulation for liberals' ideas about urban and rural development, right? Rather than create a fully federally administered or even subsidized programs, liberals saw that they might be able to inject temporary bursts of capital or bond-based financing into local communities that could stimulate market and tax-based creation that might then become a a foundation for sturdier local governments, progressive social policies down the line. And so they're they're imagining a virtuous circle here um, in in that investments on the supply side, investments in the market, investments in business elite-led developments um, um, are going to create these sort of new markets, restore tax bases, and and provide a a fiscal basis for progressive social policies. the problem, of course, uh, which which the NAACP recognized from the get-go was that minority and poor citizens had very little input into how these programs would operate. And in many cities, New Deal subsidies for the WPA or for public housing, um, in fact, targeted minority neighborhoods for demolition and clearance, right? So if we're going to jumpstart real estate markets, you know, business elites might think about, um, you know, minority-dominated communities as a good place to, to start that. And so, uh, as I say, these, these, these 1930s WPA and housing initiatives that are so often directed by local chambers of commerce, sponsored by them, become a significant antecedent for the post-war urban renewal regime that's going to displace hundreds of thousands of Americans disproportionately of color, again, on behalf of creating new markets in commercial real estate, uh, um, uh, residential real estate, and and again authorized uh, behind an idea that it's also going to jumpstart uh, property tax revenue collection at the local level. Um, so that's that's sort of the, this vision of supply side liberalism, which I which I think very much carries forward and, and is still with us in many many respects today. And are you writing from the perspective of elite business people, or are you instilling a more grassroots point of view? Um, is your stance that of a neutral historian or something else? <laughs> uh, um, so, I, yeah, I, I think I think I, I I keep I keep I keep the tone as neutral as possible, you know, up until the last pages of the of the epilogue. And I, and I think there's there's a certain, you know, the cyclical logic of returning to public private partnerships. It, it, you know, the book becomes a certain sort of exercise in and continuity and patience and, and these sort of cyclical returns to these structures. Um, and, but what I try to do, um, is, is to center the perspectives of three different constituencies essentially. Um, and, and, and to write from each of them at different moments, um, for each from each, from each perspective. And so local business elites, as I met, as I mentioned, you know, these, the chamber of commerce archives in, in the developing South and Georgia, and in the urban Midwest and Cleveland are, are the archival base. They're, they really are the through line 
across the entire book. Um, and then I also focus on federal policymakers and liberal politicians, you know, what it was they thought they were going to be getting out of these partnerships. Um, and then the, the, the third perspective are, are the anti-poverty African-American civil rights activists um, and other, um, uh, you know, urban um, uh, activists who, who are challenging these really cozy partnerships between uh, federal policymakers and, and local business elites. Um, and, and so, as I say, I, I try to keep the tone as neutral as possible. Um, and I do think, you know, federal investments in economic development are important, right? And so I, I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to discredit um, or disparage entirely the idea that the federal government has a role to play in structuring economic growth, you know, particularly in this moment where we're facing the climate crisis and you have proposals of a green industrial policy, a green new deal, right? But the question for me is really about democratic accountability. Um, My business actors tended to view any federal spending that bypassed them in favor of poor minority groups or even other community business leaders, you know, in rival communities is totally unacceptable. And so this, when we're thinking about the sort of different perspectives in the book, this creates a really perverse political logic in which many of the chief beneficiaries of all of this developmental spending spend a great deal of their time jealously guarding their access to it and then complaining about spending on other people or regions. And so in the context, context of all these growing claimants uh, for federal spending in the 1960s with the war on poverty, the welfare rights movement, and the economic crises of the 1970s, um, I try to show how what you end up with in the 1970s are, is, is, a, is a crisis of, of uh, competition over federal largesse that plays out nationally and up and down the federal system. Um, and, and what's breaking down here is, is the political economic conditions of, of relative abundance and, and sort of limited democracy, limited democratic engagement for minority groups in the 30s to the 60s, um, is beginning to yield to a period of not just austerity, but greater democratic engagement. And so, and so there's this sort of, you know, this imbalance that slants in the entire opposite direction. Um, and what ends up happening, you know, by centering the perspectives of new Democrats like Bill Clinton, who's coming of age in the 1970s, and keeping our eye on these business elites, is that you get this new consensus forming that actually the austerity crisis, the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, is often blamed on the poor themselves, right? Uh, who had who had never especially been beneficiaries of the spending that was authorized in their name. Um, you know, the underclass, the welfare queen, all of these tropes. Uh, take off in the 1970s and totally obscure where the lion's share of federal spending had actually gone <laughs> over, or, or, or state and local spending uh, for that matter as well. And so I think this creates the conditions under which business people are once again able to to reassert their legitimacy as avatars of growth, um, reassert their access to to state and national development spending, um, and and what you get is a is a much more um, uh, disciplinary and and sharp, um, sharply articulated bootstrap mythologies that get that get targeted at the poor and out of work during this period, um, and so so I, I I try to sort of show the absurdities uh, of that moment without without wearing it too heavily on my sleeve, maybe until the last pages of the epilogue. But but that's those are kind of the perspectives that I'm playing with here and trying to sort of hold those voices and views um, in in dynamic tension over time in the book. Andrew Bashevich's similarly titled book is Age of Illusions, 
And he makes out the Cold War to be this invigorating force that led to Trumpism in America. So how do you see Donald Trump as a political figure making the middle to late 20th century something of value for you? So I, I haven't I, well, I haven't read Basevich's book, um, but um, I I'm deeply sympathetic um, to understanding the Trump phenomena as having you know much deeper roots in American politics and political economy than you know say the 21st century, um, and in particular I, I think you know I don't I don't have much to say to Trump specifically, but I do spend a good deal of time in the book discussing how the costs of liberal supply side state um, in terms of taxes and democratic accountability were unevenly shared. And, and these were burdens that weren't just placed on the poor and marginalized, but also on the small homeowner. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so across the country, supply side liberalism, um, and this is sort of a sub theme that works throughout the book, makes bond markets central to local and national policy designs, right? So if there's a certain sort of fiscal frugality, um, a reticence toward direct public expenditures, because, you know, you've got to pass these things through Congress. And so, you know, incentivizing uh, state and local governments to, to borrow money on bond markets becomes a really favored method um, for subsidizing federal programs and, and driving local developments, right? Um, federal urban renewal is a perfect example of this, right? Um, so that program demands local matching commitments, which municipalities often deliver by convincing voters to pass municipal bonds. But those programs, um, which again, the costs were overwhelmingly borne by minority communities, uh, but sometimes white working class neighborhoods as well. These programs were, were often, you know, painful scars on the urban fabric at best and, and were very often failures. And so the result could be that you'd get a greater municipal debt load that's accrued on behalf of really controversial development projects that are then going to necessitate, you know, by the late 1960s and 1970s, raising local property taxes, right? That is turning up the heat on homeowners. Um, and there are many other types of bonds too that local officials recognize could be floated without even getting voters' consent. And and so I show how over the course of the 70s and 80s, but but with roots really back into the 1940s, white homeowners too um, were revolting against elites development schemes, um, which both increased taxes, limited forms of democratic engagement, and essentially benefited the elite, right? And so the, the deep and profound skepticism for government, right, this wariness about democracy um, and anger at the state um, and, you know, inequitous forms of taxation, all of which became sort of harnessed by Trump, I would say has, has really deep and, and very often legitimate roots in response to liberal forms of governance. Um, and that's before we get to all of the racial and anti-immigrant politics that Trump and, and many of his antecedents heaped on top of these otherwise, I, I think, quite legitimate criticisms of liberalism. So I, I do think there's there's something in the structure of the state that that could help us understand you know, more contemporary democratic discontents that aren't simply reducible to uh, racial reactionary politics of Trump. Um, how do you think conservatives would react to your book, Illusions of Progress, and where does a similar supply-side liberalism exist for the new right? Well, it's, it's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I think I think there would be a, a you know, I could imagine conservatives, you know, on, on the one hand, having a glib response about, you know, this this line that you often hear them taking about how liberals have often been, you know, the greatest enemy of of minority communities. And I, I think that that's a, a grossly overdrawn and I think, you know, misunderstands the ways in which a, a key set of conservative actors played a decisive role in you know, shaping the inequalities of the liberal state in the 20th century. And that are, that are precisely these, these local chamber of commerce types who are in no way ideologically aligned with liberals, but who, you know, in an opportunistic um, and ideologically self self-serving or malleable way um, are able to justify their access to state subsidies. I, I, dust off a term that's most often associated with the 19th century um, producerism. You know, it's associated with um, um, agrarian and farm farm workers movements um, in the late 19th century who, who, because they are sort of their, their work, their production is so vital to the, to the sustenance of the nation that they, they view themselves as, um, as deserving of a privileged relationship with the state, and, and so we, we historians, labor historians, uh, historians in the nineteenth century call this call this a sort of producer ethos. And part of what I try to show in the twentieth century is that these local business elites um, come to understand their these very conservative, you know, staunchly anti-union, um, you know, anti-civil rights in many cases. They come to understand their privileged relationship with the liberal state along producerist lines that they are producing jobs, they are producing tax revenue, they are producing, um, you know, fiscally sound local governments, um, and so that alone entitles them to this privileged relationship with the state. And I, I do think that they're, you know, in the um, in the the late fascism debates that we've had over the last couple of years, there's there's very much something to that ethos that um, that can sort of shade easily into that um, relationship between private market actors and the state. Um, and so I, you know, especially as as we see some conservative politicians, people like Josh Hawley. Um, who are beginning to advocate for industrial policies or, or measures that might increase the United States' global economic competitiveness? Um, I would I would caution liberals from getting too um, getting too cozy um, and, and seeking bipartisanship along those lines without thinking carefully about regulations, democratic accountabilities, um, and 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 that that sort of side of the story. Um, and I think the, the other piece of this um, that I would say more for historians of conservatism, and I, I, I think when I when I started writing the book, you know, one of the um, one of the the sort of points was to was to sort of clap back to an earlier generation of scholars of conservatism who uh, tended to take um, business people's anti-statism, you know, if not at face value, they at least didn't be, be carefully interrogate businesses, you know relationship to the state and and their what their preferences uh, in terms of policy and, and state developments might be um, and nor did they sort of think carefully about the centrality of business and market structures to the growth and sustainability of the state itself um, and so part of what I've what I've tried to render in the book is a much more sort of nuanced and I relationship between markets and the American state um, that that situates business people in many ways at, 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 uh, as, as profound state builders as well. Um, um, and, 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 um, yeah. And what kind of resistance is happening? Um, you mentioned civil rights. Are there protests? 
Yeah. So as I think I mentioned before, the archives of of community activists really became essential um, to writing this book, not not only in terms of sort of fleshing out the histories of contestation, but also in understanding how these programs actually played out. I mean, as you can imagine, um, the archives of businesses and chambers of commerce can be a bit opaque um, in certain ways. And uh, and what and what you see is that not only are these community activists um, groups in, in Ohio, like the Cleveland Citizens Participation Campaign or the Ohio Public Interest Campaign or National People's Action is a group that Rebecca Marshall has written about. Um, these groups weren't simply protesting, they were watchdogging. Um, and so they were developing um, very close accounts of how programs, say a housing program designed to help uh, you know, struggling homeowners in the late 1960s, um, you know, get low interest, small loans um, to fix a roof or replace a boiler, how those programs in terms of when they were administered locally by, you know, local banks um, were in fact being directed to first time white home homeowners um, and were fueling gentrification um, in some of these areas. And so, so the, those archives are essential for understanding how these policies actually work. And also then the, 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 the forms of resistance and the, and the reasons for resistance, right? I mean, I think scholars such as Elizabeth Hinton um, have done really fabulous work centering police brutality in particular in many of the urban uprisings of the 1960s. And part of what my archives suggest in groups like the Congress of Racial Equality or, or even, you know, a more sort of um, mainstream civil rights group like the NAACP is just how essential... Um, the inequalities associated with the broader liberal state were towards that activism and ultimately the violence, right? You think about a program like Urban Renewal, which is displacing, you know, hundreds uh, of of predominantly African-American communities, thousands and, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals, thousands and thousands of families all across the country. And so what, what what I hope the book shows is that you know, police brutality and police police violence was often the spark that lit the flame of these of these moments. But the much deeper discontents, um, you know, had a lot to do with police brutality, but it also had a lot to do with state violence associated with, um, you know, the policies of supply side liberalism, the, the ways in which these momentous federal powers were being directed by these local business elites. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, and part of the other piece of this that I think often gets gets underplayed is that, you know, a program like Urban Renewal, we scholars tend to write about, you know, in Detroit or New York or Chicago or Cleveland, big cities. But it was it, it was a predominantly small city program by the time it was it came to an end. Cities like Rome and Georgia that I write about or San Marcos, Texas or uh, Farrell, Pennsylvania. I mean, these are these are tiny little communities of 10, 20, 30,000 people that are simply excising uh, their black communities in many cases. Um, and so those local archives help bring some of that, that social texture um, to, to these processes. And I think the other, the other thing I would like to say about that um, is that by the, by the late 1970s and 1980s, um, as the radicalism of the 1960s is beginning to fade, and I think there's a sort of generational story of, of a sort of aging cohort that's happening there, but there's also fragmentation and exhaustion and austerity in many of the movements. Um, many became dependent upon white liberal elite philanthropies and, and so moderated their politics accordingly. Other activist groups became focused on community economic development, created community development corporations, CDCs. 
Um, but I think part of the story I try to tell by the time we get into the 80s and 90s is a story about how CDCs and philanthropies are part of a wider strategy pursued and, and pioneered in many cases by local elites to manage citizen participation in public programs much more attentively. Like they learned from the 60s community action battles, um, the need to, to offer meetings and hearings and airings that could sort of act as pressure valves, not necessarily to respond meaningfully to community demands, but to, but to moderate um, and, and to sort of uh, temper them. Um, and in this, in this line of argumentation, I'm, I'm building on the work of sociologists such as Caroline Lee, uh, who's written at length about what she calls the sort of new democratic participation. She edited, edited a great volume on this titled um, Democratizing Inequalities. And, and my analysis there is really indebted uh, to her her work and other sociologists of, of civic democracy as well. Are public works initiatives such as infrastructure and urban development mirrored in rural places or spaces in your book? Um do you include information about how rural life and farmers were affected by supply-side liberalism? You do write about the dichotomy between Cleveland, Ohio, and Rome, Georgia. Yeah, very much so. I, but I, I think one, one thing that's, that's important to say is that, that rather than frame the book as a straight sort of apples-to-apples apples comparison of the South and the North, which which would be you know really difficult empirically to, to carry through in certain ways. I, I, I like to I, I tend to think of the book as a as a study of sort of kindred federal economic development programs, um, watching as as sort of programs that have similar logic, very often the same programs in the case of say urban renewal or community action, um, following these programs into these local areas and and watching um, how they play out and how. Um, the certain logics uh, produce new political outcomes. Uh, um, and I certainly, I wish I could have included more social histories of these programs, particularly in the rural South and particularly among uh, African-American communities there in the thirties and forties that I just, I, I ran into real archival limitations on that front. Um, but I do see certain convergences occurring here in, in terms of how federal programs, um, you know, in this fiscal constitutional logics of federalism, incentivize certain outcomes and constituencies over others. Uh, about a decade ago, um, a couple of scholars, Joe Crispino and Matt Lassiter, published an edited collection called The Myth of Southern Exceptionalism, um, which tended to focus on suburbanization, uh, cultural convergences, um, migration patterns. And what I hope my book adds to that account um, is, is really the dynamics of fiscal federalism and, and this recourse to, to market and tax-based development, which I think structured a certain homogeneous process of development. So a, an example that I that I often use is the 701 planning grant program, which was created in the 1954 Housing Act, which, which created seed funds to enable tiny little communities all across the country uh, to hire or contract with urban planners, right? And what this meant was that billions of federal subsidies helped modernize the capacities of local governments um, to court certain types of development, to pursue certain strategies of land use and infrastructure. And all of that, I argue, had profound consequences in terms of structuring these regional convergences in terms of the built environment, in terms of you know, similarly constructed forms of inequality, economic strategies, and more. Um, and so, yeah, so rather than seeing it as, as, as a sort of comparative case study, I, I, I tend to think of it as a sort of case study, case studies that allow us to see federalism um, in action uh, across the 20th century and in very, very different regions. And what is the New South for you? <laughs> um, 
Well, so, I mean, the, there have been many New Souths, right? Um, so there was a New South after the Civil War. There was another New South after Reconstruction and the racial violence of the Redemption era. And then again, the one that I really focus on in the book is is the one that comes after the Civil Rights Movement uh, of the 1960s. Um, and and what I argue, and, and I'm really, I focus on Jimmy Carter here, who, who got his... Um, who got his start as one of my local business elites. He was in a chamber of commerce. He got involved in regional economic development strategies. He was he was involved in, in West Central Georgia in um, managing uh, poor people's participation in community and economic development strategies. Um, and part of part of what I show is that when he gets elected George, governor of Georgia in 1970, he he becomes literally the 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 poster the poster politician. He's on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, in which Time Magazine is declaring a, a new progressive South, and he's focusing on Jimmy Carter. And part of what I try to say is that in this period of, of another new South, some of the greatest beneficiaries of the civil rights movement of the 1960s and, and the Johnson era um, federal reforms and Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, were precisely these white elites um, who essentially get to pluck the thorn of, of you know regional racial exceptionalism from their side, say that we don't need to focus on these issues anymore, and let's get down to to more sort of material issues of economic growth um, um, and and enter this this new post racial future. And this is this is the era, of course, in which. Um, a new generation of Democrats like Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn are coming of age. Um, and again, sort of all available actual evidence. Um, these, these liberals are inclined to sort of imagine that the, that the overtly, um, you know, racist politics of the past are past. We're in a new South and we need to move on. And there's a, there's a certain way in which this actually um, begins to mimic or, or echo the, um, the politics of the North. I mean, this is, this is always, this, this was always, um, you know, the, the, the Southern, the Southern exceptional racial structure was one that allowed the North to imagine that it's more market oriented system of racial exclusions, um, was far less politically structured. And so there's a way in which, um, you know, the, the civil rights and voting rights act enable, um, the new Democrats of the seventies and eighties to imagine, the period preceding that as a period of racial exceptionalism in the South in the same way that the North did um, for, for much of the, for much of American history. Um, and so, you know, the new South is a trope. It's a, it's a political trope. It's a tool that, that, that politicians and boosters use uh, to recruit capital, to justify their political leadership. Um, and it is, it has been ever thus. How were regular citizens and African-Americans able to use subsidies to refute the claim that they were poor? Are there more positive examples of success happening after the New Deal um, contributing to the illusions of progress? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 and I, I try to be careful about this in the book to, to say, you know, the Civil Rights and, and Voting Rights Act, I mean, certain employment-based regulations that, that come online are, are, are essential. Um, but I think one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book was that, that those victories didn't flow from any inherent logic of liberalism. It didn't. It didn't flow from anything that that uh, concentrated, entrenched, mobilized white elites were pushing for. It, it, they were almost always the result of activism and organization in African American and among poor communities themselves. Um, and I think part of part of understanding the political 
logic of liberalism is is the way in which it's 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 it, it is enabled it enables itself to sort of incorporate these externally pushed uh, forms of progress into their self-conception and to sort of read that back into what liberalism had always been. Um, and, and I think what I try to show in the book is that, is that again, that, that, that a lot of the, the, the biggest successes actually came from the grassroots political organizing that in some cases were made possible by liberal policies. So, so, um, I, one of the, one of the central actors in the Cleveland chapters is is a, a single mother named Fannie Lewis, um, who becomes empowered by and in many ways radicalized by the war on poverty. You know the the ways in which the Johnson administration takes community action away from her community um, inspires a sustained political career. She goes on to become uh, the longest tenured member of Cleveland City Council. Um, and over the 80s and 90s, through sheer grit and determination and confrontation with the city's leadership, she secures some of the most successful affordable housing projects in the city's history, right, which, which are still viable, still thriving today. But I think the key here is that liberalism and liberal policies were as often as not impediments or inspira- impediments to or inspirations for her work as they were supportive. Um, and so, you know, one of the lessons I would say is that finding ways to empower regular people, to enable them to use public resources for self-determination is so very important, um, not only to solving issues of poverty, but also to restoring democratic participation and a more vibrant civic life. And, and, and that if we just sort of, um, sit back and vote, um, that, that there's nothing, there's nothing about our, our, the political logic of liberalism that, that suggests that, that those outcomes are going to be forthcoming. If it were up to you, what exactly should the New Deal have done differently to avert its mistakes? <laughs> um, so I don't, yeah, a historian, I'm, I'm not comfortable with counterfactuals. And I, I, I think I'd rather focus on, on what, we, what we could learn from the New Deal. And I think that, that dovetails with, with where I ended the, 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 an earlier question. Um, on the one hand, I think, I think that's the necessity of developing an appreciation for truly universal social security programs. Uh, you know, one of the, the reasons why social security itself is so durable is that it's perceived as earned and universal. Um, and I think, I think one of the, the limitations of the new deal, um, and, and of the supply side logic was this sort of this reliance on markets and half measures to carry out social goods that I would argue, um, are, should never be the prominence of the market, right? Healthcare, uh, pensions, insurance, uh, even wage floors, those types of things, right? Um, you know, it, when, when economic fortunes go south um, in the American system, all of those forms of, of social security are imperiled. Um, and so to the extent that the New Deal did offer benefits for retirements, healthcare insurance, they offer often structured them through the market, uh, through your employment. Um, and, and I think that that, you know, when jobs go away, those forms of social security go away. So I, I would, I would say rather than putting all of our eggs in the basket of growth and, and economic development, um, to, to think more robustly about universal and, and decommodified, demarketized forms of social, social good. The, the other thing that I would say, um, that is a really important legacy of the New Deal that 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 we need to grapple with um, is is this sort of fusion of highly aspirational language of social rights, um, but that's paired among liberals, especially with a with a pretty deep suspicion for public power 
uh, and government authority um, and directly provisioning of, of those social rights. There's a, there's a real wariness toward public action. And I think that often leaves um, liberals um, uh, with, with, a, with a policy hand tied behind their backs, right? Rather than pursue constitutional reform, liberals tend to overlay policies on policies. And I, and I think a more robust left liberalism today would, would carry forward the New Deal's highest social democratic aspirations, but would pair that with a much more thoroughgoing critique of our institutions, our instincts uh, for technocracy, say, and, and try to reimagine the constitutional order itself. I think it's really striking that the New Deal um, really was an end of, of a period of, of robust constitutional reform and amendments, um, and, that, and that we haven't seen um, a, a return to that that type of, of of real thoroughgoing democratic engagement with our institutions and structures, um, and I, I think that that emphasis on policy on technocracy is itself a, a legacy of the New Deal that that we would be wise to jettison. And the military is there an element of international diplomacy and in illusions of progress, or is it all domestic? The end of World War II comes first, but what about after that? Um, so uh, th- this is—it's much—it's not—it's not, it's not a, a international history by any stretch, um, and and certainly sort of um, international relations don't play a major. Um, um, substantive role in the book, but I do think the Cold War um, is an absolutely essential um, background condition for everything that's happening uh, from the 40s to the 70s, essentially, in the book. Um, they are, um, the, the Cold War um, provides the essential fig leaf uh, for major forms of domestic spending um, that enable much of the economic development um uh, initiatives that a lot of my local business elites are are pursuing in partnership with universities that are getting major uh, federal investments on behalf of the Cold War, and I think that the, the all that Cold War spending um, provided <laughs> ideological cover for both conservatives and liberals, who you know, in the light of day, would have been very sheepish about just how interventionist the American state was becoming in the fifties and sixties in terms of driving. Uh, economic innovation, research and development, structuring markets, all these things, right? And so uh, part of what ends up happening by the 1970s is is as the Cold War is, is winding down um, in, in that decade, um, you also are getting, um, you know, less generous federal expenditures that might benefit universities and, and local, local development uh, uh, actors. Um, and so that, that I, I think is playing a sort of unheralded role in some of the austerity that, that turns up the political temperature in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Um, the other, the other way in which I think this is very much in dialogue with, with, you know, more recent global or transnational histories, um, is, is in the way in which I, I think, I think of my book as offering sort of a domestic, um, a domestic account of modernization theories that 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 historians like my my colleague Amy Offner here at Penn um, or scholars such as Nils Gilman, Michael Latham, uh, Daniel Immervar, Stephen Massacara, all, all of these scholars who who focus on American developmentalism and ideas about growth abroad had profound roots in the New Deal and they follow along as New Deal actors go abroad. And then uh, in, in Amy Offner's case, how those ideas 
ideas come back. Um, and, and so part of what I think I'm up to is actually tracing some of those same dynamics, but through the industrial Midwest, through the developing South. Um, and, and often there are actors um, who did spend time abroad and, and came back as somebody like Walter Heller, um, who was absolutely essential to the Kennedy and Johnson administration's ideas about growth and taxation. He cut his teeth um, uh, in in the reconstruction of, of post-war Germany um, and thinking about fiscal policies there. Um, and so while it isn't sort of front burner in the book, the Cold War and these and the ways in which sort of liberal modernization and development ideas are, are functioning abroad and, and fluidly moving between the domestic and international scene is, is is sort of ever and always present in the book. Aside from supply side liberalism, are you promoting any other theories or models of historical analysis that you want to mention? Well, you know, it, it's um, at bottom. I, I do think that the book is 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 really a history of federalism um, and fiscal policy uh, in particular, and the way that fiscal policy plays out across federalism, um, which which may not be the most exciting thing in the world. Um, but I, but I think it's a really important analytical frame to put on political and economic change over time, and it and it also integrates. Um, it, it enables us to integrate capitalism um, and market actors into our theories of the state. Um, and what I mean by that is, is thinking in terms of federalism and the fiscal capacities of different levels of government alerts us to certain sorts of developmental incentives that they have, right? So if, if, state, if, if local governments are, are overwhelmingly dependent upon property taxes, what I, what I find as I look at local governments over the sort of long array of the 20th century is that most programs, most federal expenditure programs that get sent into the local level end up getting slanted toward initiatives that at least that will explicitly or at least implicitly and, and perhaps down the road will boost property values, right? So I've mentioned, you know, the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, homeownership programs that were designed to help struggling homeowners, you know, in, in cities like Tampa and Cleveland and all San Antonio, all over the country, what you end up seeing is, is local officials saying, yeah, it would be nice to be able to help that lower income person stay in their home. But what if we could direct these, these programs to benefit and, and to recruit, you know, white gentrifiers into some of these same neighborhoods who might, you know, raise the property values even higher and thus produce more tax revenues. Um, and so, uh, what I try to what I try to show in the book is how federalism itself becomes a sort of political structure within which contestation plays out up and down the structure and over time. And I think I think that's that's really important for urban and political historians who tend to who tend to write sort of unidirectionally. Right, we've got a social movement that wants to advocate for or for a particular policy, and we follow that up the system. Or you know, a political historian might write about. A program and a policy, and follow it into a local community to see how it, see how it plays out. But part of what I'm trying to signal to to scholars and readers are the ways in which those dynamics are are really durable um, and and have this this constraining and cyclical effect on on how uh, on how public policies after they are written become slanted in one direction or another, right? And so the other piece of that then is, is of course, taxes, as, as I've mentioned, is, is the ways in which governments um, across the federal system, but especially local governments, are fundamentally dependent upon market actors and market dynamism for their lifeblood. And, and that plays that plays a really unheralded role, I think, in structure and inequality and, and 
um, and in blunting the impact of more progressive policies. And so I would urge scholars to really pay attention to the fiscal and and federal fiscal structures within which um, their stories are playing out. And what kinds of works of art do you think best represent the period as a form of existential dread or as an accurate depiction of the era? (laughs) <laughs> I love I love this question. Um, so when he's when he was campaigning for the presidency in, in 1932 in the depths of the depression, uh, Franklin Roosevelt um, famously talked about he, he talked about the forgotten man. Right. Um, you know, we tend to think about the forgotten man as the little local people, um, you know, the the you know, the the people who had been foreclosed upon the destitute, um, the unemployed. Right. Uh, but for FDR, uh, he's also talking about local bankers. He's talking about local business people, right? He's trying to sort of stitch together this sort of idealized vision of localism. And so when I when I think about a movie um, that I think in many ways gives the lie to FDR's, you know, you know, sort of fantastical conception of of what local communities might be. It's 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 a wonderful life uh, from 1945, right? In which George Bailey and the residents of Bedford Falls are are, are really struggling under the grip of Henry Potter um, and the Bailey brothers building and loan company, right? Which is essentially controls the entire town. And it's, it's, it's Bailey brothers, it's Potter, um, that end up being the local partners of the new deal. Um, not, not the George Bailey's. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's a way in which, um, that, that movie is a sort of, um, a willful fantasy of what might've been, um, and, and, uh, you know, whether they knew it or not. Um, but I, but I do think this, this idea that, um, you know, local bankers are somehow, uh, you know, I, I do think they have better local knowledge, but, but, but let's not, let's not situate them as, as, um, you know, the fonts of democratic, uh, revitalization. <laughs> Is there a digital humanities project that you are working to put your book illusions of progress into, um, whether that be a new medium of expression or something to highlight the digital transformation. Yeah. Th- thank you. Thank you for asking that. I, I, um, I really appreciate it. I, in, in part, I, 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 there's not a project that I'm, that I'm going to build from the book, but, but I built a, a, a uh, with the digital scholarship lab at the university of Richmond and the, and the brilliant digital humanists there, um, I built a, a project called renewing inequality. And so they, they are the shop that was behind, um, mapping inequality, which, which mapped all of the HOLC, um, uh, redlining maps, um, from, from the 1930s. Uh, and when I was a postdoc there, um, I proposed and, and we carried out a, a pretty significant project that mapped um, the vast majority of every urban renewal project um, from 1949 to 1974 that displaced anyone, essentially. Um, and what that what that uh, project made clear to me in, in a way that really had not been before was, was how my case study in Rome, Georgia, which had an urban renewal project, which decimated the the bustling but small um, African-American community in Rome, um, was actually far more the norm in terms of how urban renewal played out than were larger cities like Cleveland, uh, Chicago, Detroit, San Francisco. Um, and by that, I mean the majority of our, what, what mapping this, this, this program by using all these federal records to show displacement over time, to show the actual spaces that were displaced, 
What we found was that a, the vast majority uh, of urban renewal projects were in cities of 50,000 or fewer. And within that figure, uh, a majority were in cities of 25,000 or fewer. And so part of what I hope that project alerts urban historians to in particular is the need to really uh, think carefully about scale in urban history. And, and you know, this was a, a major urban program that was that was being pulled into communities that urban historians have scarcely considered urban. Um, and so I don't I don't have any. Uh, great takeaway from that observation, other than I do think that that we need a whole lot more scholarship um, into the fates of smaller um, um, uh, and developing urban communities in the 20th century, which which was the story in many of these places of urban development, um, but but capped at 30,000 or 35,000 people. Um, and certainly the federal government and its programs were being pulled into these areas. Eric Rauchway is one of my favorite historians on the New Deal and why it matters. Who else do you recommend New Books Network listeners to read more of? Also, what academic traditions or other historical themes um, is your book, Illusions of Progress, a part of? I totally agree uh, on on Eric Rauchway. His 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 recent uh, couple of books have been so important in elevating um, uh, the progressive successes and possibilities of the New Deal, and I think has played a really important role in shaping contemporary ideas about the Green New Deal um, and really popularizing that that framework. Um, uh, and in addition to to Eric's work, I think my my thinking on that era has been shaped by by a number of wonderful historians. I, I think of, you know, in terms of local national partnerships and democracy, Mason Williams' book, City of Ambition, is such a beautifully written account of the democratizing effects of the New Deal in New York City. Um, you know, that he, he shows that all these New Deal works programs, pools and parks um, had, had, had great civic downstream effects in terms of actually getting people to be to participate more in, in local elections. Uh, women especially became much greater participants in, in, in local democracy as a result of, of the New Deal. Mason uh, Williams' work builds upon um, Elizabeth Cohen's uh, account of labor and culture and politics among working class Chicagoans making a New Deal, which was you know, absolutely one of, the, one of the most important books to me uh, as a graduate student. Um, more broadly, I, I, I think, I, you know, I, I certainly take issue with some of Ira Katz-Nelson's uh, framing about, you know, arguing that the South played a unique role in limiting the New Deal's progressive possibilities. But his work on the New Deal has also been really foundational for me. His, his book, When Affirmative Action Was White, totally changed the trajectory of my academic career by emphasizing all the ways in which the New Deal uh, essentially created the white working class or white middle class in ways that were unavailable to, to vast swaths of of African-American and other minority communities. And I think his more recent book, Fear Itself, does such a wonderful job of situating um, the New Deal in a global frame. Uh, In it, we see New Dealers grappling with really profound questions about democracy and capitalism in the context of global fascism and communism. And I think it's it's a really fresh and important take on sort of the global frame in which the, the New Deal was unfolding. Uh, in terms of in terms of other fields, um, you know, I, my work is very much in dialogue um, and indebted to the political science field of historical institutionalism, uh, what some people call American political development. Um, in in many ways, as I I've mentioned here, the, the book is a history of federalism in action, um, and there's no way that I could have begun to map out a project 
about that without the pioneering works of scholars, you know, especially the late scholar Martha Durthick, uh, political scientists like Daniel Carpenter, Theda Scotchpaul, Karen Arn, and Stephen Skoranek, um, Suzanne Mettler, the legal historian Bill Novak, um, and, and my graduate mentor at UVA, Brian Vallow, he's a historian, but but really um, deeply, deeply in dialogue with with um, American political development. And I think all the what all these scholars were doing is, is, you know, for a long time, the study of the American state had been geared toward comparisons with the more seemingly fully developed welfare states of Europe, the more, you know, more bureaucratic states of Europe. And what these scholars began to jettison was these sort of these normative comparisons in favor of actually studying what the American state does, um, how it developed. Um, and I think what I've tried to add uh, is an appreciation for state builders thinking about the place of capitalism and market actors um, and business in making the American state what it has been, um, shaping its, its, its possibilities and its, <laughs> its limitations as well. Moving to later um, parts of uh, the chronology of your book, do you mention um, Bill Clinton? And if so, how are things looking better or worse? So Clinton, Clinton is is really the capstone of the book in many ways. And, and part of what I'm trying to do here is, is both draw continuities between Clinton and, say, Roosevelt and Johnson uh, eras of, of liberal reform, but also mark some pretty significant discontinuities. And I, and I think, I think it's important to, to, uh, sort of think biographically and generationally. Um, so Clinton is, is part of this generation of new Democrats who comes of age in the 1970s. Um, this is a period of, of profound economic crisis. You know, this is the era of stagflation. This is an era of pitched fiscal crises of state and local governments who simply don't think they have enough tax revenues. Their budgets are out of balance. You have cities like Cleveland, uh, defaulting on their bonds, going bankrupt, right? And so there's a real skepticism um, and wariness about the public sector, right? And, and as I mentioned earlier, there's this is a period of profound suspicion for interest group claimants, right? This is the era of the welfare rights movement. And there's real concern that as, as some um, Marxist economists and others uh, of the 1970s put it, that, that, that democracy had become overloaded, that, that as, a, as a sort of, as, as a way of, uh, as a social system, as a social and political structure, that democracy had, had sort of exhausted itself. Um, I, think, I think those arguments are overdrawn, <laughs> um, but, but, but I think there was a generation of liberals who came of age in these crises who, who were very wary about uh, building up large government structures that, that lacked a, f- a sound fiscal basis. And in the process, what they ended up doing was reinventing supply-side liberalism in a far more austere way. Um, so they, they, just like New Deal and Great Society liberals, look to business to provide the growth that will provide the tax revenues. But the skepticism for the state itself that they have grown up in in the 1970s informs the ways in which they actually begin to apply supply-side logics um, in entirely new areas that would have been utterly foreign to somebody like Franklin Roosevelt. And, and so the example that I close with is, is Clinton's acquiescence in, in Gingrich's scheme to end welfare. And, and certainly Clinton had campaigned in 1992 to, quote unquote, end welfare as we know it. But the plan that, that he and, and, uh, and his the Democratic policymakers were, were making was far less um, <laughs> far less disciplinary and austere than what they ended up coming up with and and to and to sort of 
put a social or progressive gloss on ending welfare um, in 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 and creating uh, the personal responsibility uh, prora um, act. Clinton turns to the the techniques of supply side liberalism. He uh, takes subsidies that would have gone to welfare and creates public-private partnerships um, to subsidize businesses hiring people who had been on welfare. They create tax subsidies. Um, and so what you see is, and, and this is where I think there's a sort of liberal path to neoliberalism that's very distinct from conservative paths, is what you see is 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 the ways in which these tools of supply-side liberalism, the tools of public-private partnerships, of relying on market actors um, for social ends are beginning to be applied in in far far greater uh, in in areas that that New Dealers would would never have thought to do so in part because welfare was meant to be an entitlement to protect you from the market, and and what you see New Democrats like Clinton doing is is actually structuring market solutions for things like abject poverty, um, and and the other piece of this that I do think is is very different is that that coming of age in the 1970s and the 1980s in this period of you know interest group contestation there was a real wariness among these new democrats for democracy itself again if democracy is overloaded democracy itself is somehow part of the problem um, of of the state's fiscal crisis and so part of what i think you see in these this recourse toward market logics is shearing off democratic accountability making it difficult for democratic publics to shape the state, to shape the way in which social progress, social programs are being structured because they're ultimately being arbitrated and administered through the market. Um, and so I think we are, we're coming out of a period of, of really bleak, um, bleak ideas about what the public sector is, really desiccated ideas about what the public sector is. And, and I think to the extent that supply side liberalism persists today, um, it, 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 and it does in, in the figure of people like Ezra Klein, who are calling for supply side progressivism and just getting things built. Um, I, I hope that it that we can begin to reimagine the civic and the democratic sphere alongside um, a more green or uh, progressive vision of market creation. And where does the trajectory of your book predict uh, will be the ultimate result? of supply-side liberalism, if there is one at all, um, can you make a prediction? Well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make a prediction, but I, but I do think I'll, I'll make a recommendation. I mean, I think, I think the, um, one of the books that I think is really important and, and would be worth, you know, I just mentioned Ezra Klein and, and advocates of supply-side progressivism. Um, I mean, I do think, I, I think we are, we are entering a phase, um, in which fundamental institutional and constitutional reform is going to be essential in this country and simply laying policies on top of policies um, is, is I think, simply going to recreate a lot of the inequalities that we've had before, um, in part because, you know, a lot of the a lot of the chambers of commerce and business elites that that provided the foundation for much of 20th century supply side liberalism simply aren't there anymore i mean we've we've had such um such profound economic restructuring and consolidation in banking and real estate that that localism um simply isn't there anymore banks are now you know so often creatures of of multi-state institutions and and the leaders at the local level who want to go up and out um you know would never want to stay the way that somebody in the 1950s or 1960s would, and you know, who had a real civic commitment. 
um, as blinkered as it may have been. And so I think relying on localism um, will necessitate a whole lot more federal oversight, regulation, and accountability. Um, and so the, the book I would recommend um, that I think is really important is, is Karen Orn and Stephen Skoranek's The Policy State, which I think lays out the constitutional uh, impasse that we are in, in, in many ways. And, and, I, and I would hope policymakers would read it along with my book and, and come up with um, more democratic means of, of fostering both economic growth and, growth and, and solving our, our social problems. And do you have anything you want to end with, uh, Dr. Sebel? Yeah, I think I think we've covered it. Um, thank you so much for your, for your interest and your time and your questions. New Books Network and Nathan Moore appreciate Dr. Brent Sebel for adding a new episode about his new book, Illusions of Progress. To get more episodes from authors and academics you want to know more about, please visit the New Books Network website or subscribe on your favorite listening platforms and enjoy.